since learning the truth about alcohol over four years ago, I've become pretty skeptical about anything that seems too good to be true. You know, like alcohol. If you're like me and you can spot a too good to be true health hack from a mile away, congrats, you're a skeptic too. Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. I take Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus every morning because it has high quality and traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. It's gentle on an empty stomach and has a minty essence in every bottle that helps make taking my multis actually enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com forward slash sober mom. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash sober mom for 25% off. All right, you guys, I am currently struggling with a pinched nerve in my neck. And if you have ever had one, you know the pain. So I am feeling super thankful for today's sponsor, Tanasi. Tanasi's CBD, CBDA is two times better than CBD alone and better than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. It helps soothe and relieve my aches and pains, like my pinched nerve, and it's great for sleep and anxiety, so I put it on right before bed. Tanasi was discovered by a team of chemists and biologists at Middle Tennessee State University, and 5% of all revenue is given back to the university partner for ongoing research. It is THC-free and comes in a range of products. I love the topicals, but you can also choose from soft gels, gummies, and tinctures. Satisfaction is guaranteed. Try Tanasi for 30 days, and if you don't love it, you get a full refund. Go to Tanasi.com and use code MOM to get 25% off at checkout. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with promo code MOM. Hi, welcome to the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne, of My Kind of Sweet and the Sober Mom Life on Instagram. If you are a mama who has questioned your relationship with alcohol at times, if you're wondering if maybe it's making motherhood harder, this is for you. I will be having candid, honest, funny conversations with other moms who have also thought, hmm, maybe motherhood is better without alcohol. Is it possible? We'll chat and we'll talk about all things sobriety and how we've found freedom in sobriety. I don't consider myself an alcoholic. You don't have to either. And maybe life is brighter without alcohol. I hope you will join us on this journey and I'm so excited to get started. Hi, welcome back to the Sober Mom Life podcast. You guys, I am on my floor in my closet right now. I'm switching it up for this intro. Also, this episode was a really special one. I have Katsia from the Sober Elephant Chronicles. She is just a powerhouse of a delightful woman. If you are a single mom, I think you'll really love this episode and you'll feel inspired. She was a single mom for a long time and and she's just such a warrior. And she seems to me like her energy is just very gentle and loving. So she is like a gentle warrior. That's what really came across. She's a writer and I, I love that. 
Yeah, I, you guys, these conversations are life-changing for me too. So I, I know you'll love it. I do have to apologize for my voice in this episode. I was really struggling. My voice is just cashed. It sounds like I was out partying all night, cigarettes, you know, like back in my 20s. That was not it. It was that never-ending cold flu, just crud stuff. So I'm sorry for my voice. I don't want it to interfere with how you listen to this episode. So hopefully you can overlook that. Yeah, I, I know you guys will love Ketsia and go follow her on the Sober Elephant Chronicles. Everything is linked in the show notes. And also don't forget to come and join the Sober Mom Life Facebook group. Man, it is, I, we've had, well, we're up to almost 3,000 members, which blows my mind. 3,000 moms who are all, I gotta say, the new members tend to be very um, outspoken about how kind and supportive everyone in the group is. And it's so true. It is the most supportive group of women I've ever been honored to be a part of. And I'm just so lucky and uh, I love it so much. We're also, we have a Zoom meeting every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Central Time. That link is in the group. It's free. It's just a place for us just to talk. We've been doing it for about a month now. And it's such a joy. We just talk about whatever is on our minds and whatever we're struggling with, um, whatever we're celebrating, if what we have coming up, especially with the holidays. I know it's been great to have more support. So just come and join us over there. And then don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Sober Mom Life Podcast and on TikTok and all of that stuff. Okay, we're not going to wait any longer. Here is Ketsia. Thanks, guys. Okay, we are here today with Katzia from the Silver Elephant Chronicles. I sound like I am a pack a day smoker, but I'm not. <laughs> this is just the cold, the never ending cold that won't go away. So let's just get that out of the way to begin with. Hi, Katzia. Thank you for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad. You said you were, you had a cold too, and we were just saying like. It's just tis the season. Uh, I feel like I never get fully sick, knock on wood, but I get like yeah. a little bit. And my daughter's the same way. I was lucky with her that she never fully gets sick with anything. So I'm like, oh, that's great. But then it's the lingering, like for me, it's the lingering cold that like never goes away. And I'm like, what is this? Yes. It's like the crud. Yeah. That's what I call it. It's just the crud that right. is just like, yeah, lingering below the surface. It's just going to make you feel a little off. It's going to make you sound like mm -hmm. something's going on. Ugh. Okay. Enough about that. I'm so glad you're here. Tell us a little bit about you before we jump into all of the drinking story and sobriety story. Yeah. So I grew up in Canada, in Western Canada, a place called Edmonton, which is in Alberta. I lived there until I was 20, but I moved out of home when I was 17. It was just me and my brother. And I had this like fierce independence. Like I was like, I want to do things my own way. I'm going to get a full-time job. I didn't want to go to college right away. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I just wanted to make money, right? So I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job. Yeah. And I don't come from a family of alcoholics, like my immediate family. I was raised in a home where alcohol wasn't really prevalent. Like my parents would have get togethers with their friends, maybe like 
once a month or every month and a half or something. And they would have a few drinks or like they'd go to a movie and dinner and they'd have drinks, but it was all very normal um, drinking. So I didn't really start drinking when I was young. Okay. I had one high school party (laughs) at my house. I was dating a guy and I, I guess my parents were going for an extended period of time, but like not overnight or anything. They were just going to be out later. And he's like, yeah, let's have this party. And she was, News got around the school that this girl in Petrolia, like my neighborhood, was having um, a party. And oh my god, it sounds like a movie. And then did like eight hundred people show up? And then your parents came home, and then the cops came, and then I could just see it all. Exactly, that is pretty much what happened. The cops never came to my house, but him and I ended up like wandering the neighborhood after at some point in the evening, like there's some sketchy oh my God. like parts where the memories aren't really there. And there was cops actually looking for a guy who had broken into a bank and like stolen some of like the ATM. Oh my God. So he came across us and my boyfriend at the time had a backpack on. And so we had to like <laughs> sit on the side of the road and be questioned. And I was like, oh God. That's hilarious. Yes. You're like, I'm going to have a party, but I'm not going to rob a bank. <laughs> <laughs> escalate to this, right? Yeah, I did not see this coming. Right. So so that was really the extent of it. It was like Mike's Hard Lemonade and like Smirnoff Ice. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I remember that so much like in college. Yeah. And the sickly sweet, like, oh, and the headache. I know they still make Mike's Hard Lemonade. I, I don't... Do they? I think so. I feel like that's what like all of the White Claw drinks... Yes. I, I've never had them because I stopped drinking before that, but that's what they remind me of. Oh, yeah. Where it's like really sweet and like, it just looks like a headache to me. Oh, how do we drink? I, I don't really notice, like, I don't remember that I had a bad hangover. But then again, like I said, I wasn't really one of those people who was been drinking every weekend or like. Yeah. Also, when we're like 18, I feel like it's just, you don't even know, right? You can like survive on like no sleep and like yes. literally just, I don't know. I don't know how I did it. And like yeah. when my drinking became a problem in my 30s, it was like, <laughs> I would be like a zombie. You know, I would function, but me on my own, like by myself, I was like curled up in a ball, like just <laughs> not able to do anything, right? Yeah. Oh my God, I know. Like how our body changes over time. Like my last hangover, I was 39 and I was like mm-hmm. literally going to die. Like I was like, oh, I am dying currently on the couch. I was 39 when I quit also. Yeah. You were? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I want to get to that. Okay. So you drank a little bit, but not a lot. You robbed a bank. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> oh my goodness. The word is going to spread like wild. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So were Elephant Chronicles on the bank? <laughs> yeah, they're like, wow, was that her rock bottom? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so that happened. And and when I moved out when I was 17, I got a job, a really good job in 1999. It paid $40,000 a year, which was like, Ooh, yes, this, yeah. this is a good job. Working in a call center for a software company. And I met a guy there from England. And him and I started dating. And long story short, his contract was up. And he's like, do you want to come back to England with me? And I was like, sure. So I was in journalism at the local college, but it wasn't really the style of writing that I enjoyed. And I was kind of at this like crossroads where I was like, I could leave and try and do what I really wanted to do. So I was like, I'll go to England. 
I'll do my English literature undergrad there. What better place to do it, right? Totally. <laughs> Sounds so romantic. Oh, yeah. So, so I left with him and I ended up staying in the UK for almost seven years. Wow. So we stayed together. And you guys stayed together? Oh, wow. We stayed together for a really long time in your 20s, I think, you know, to be... 19 or like, yeah, I guess I was 19 to like 26. We were together. Wait, so were you born in 1980? One, 1981. Oh, 19. Okay. okay. I was born in 1980. I'm like, this timeline is, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I graduated in 1999. So, okay. Yep. I was 98. Yeah. I went over, stayed for seven years or almost seven years. And what happened was we started growing apart, at least in my mind, we had. And I, didn't know how to talk about it with him because he was like my first serious boyfriend. I had a high school boyfriend, the guy that I robbed the bank with. <laughs> Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde, for sure. <laughs> and so I um, didn't know how to approach it with him. And unfortunately, I just started like, I want to say that my drinking wasn't a problem when I lived there. But now in, in retrospect, only in the last few months when I've started working with a therapist doing IFS therapy, which has been so transformative. Okay, what's IFS? Internal family systems. Oh, my mom's a therapist and I don't know if I've ever heard of that term. Okay, wow. I'll send you the title of a book after. It, it's really, yeah. I've been searching for therapists for, well, that's a different story, but for like, I, this was my seventh one since we immigrated to the States like two years ago. Okay. But anyway, when we started doing that, I would have always told you when I first got sober that I never had a drinking problem in my 20s and like when I lived in the UK and all that. Yeah. Looking back and doing the work that I do now, I realized that there would be nights that we would go out and like the next day, like we didn't really keep alcohol in the house unless we were having people over like pre-gaming or whatever. Yeah. But there would be like little holes in my memory, like almost like little perforations, right? And I'm like, yeah. To be honest, I didn't even know the term blackout or brownout. Like none of that was in my like field of vision, right? So without the language to define something, it's really hard for you to have any control over it because you just, why would I see it as problematic? Especially when my other, you know, my friends were going out and doing the same things and we'd all laugh and be like, oh my God, I don't remember doing this and this and that, right? Yes. Just because it's normalized doesn't mean it's quote unquote normal. Or it doesn't mean it's healthy, right? Like Right. Or good for you or right. Right. Like it and so there was like these things that have started happening. And when that when I was living over there, I started like drifting apart from him and I would form friendships or like close connections with other men and start talking to these men and and this like subliminal like yeah really not fair to him like trying to get out of the relationship but not telling him that I was and and trying to get attention from other people yeah and what happened was my grandfather got sick in 2007 I guess he got sick and I came back to Canada for a visit and I just decided to stay we owned a house together in England <laughs> Really? Yeah. And I said to him, I was like, uh, I need to be here with my family, which was partly the truth, but partly also I had been looking for this like way out. Yeah, you found your out uh, kind of. I think that now and it's like, it's still sometimes hard for me to have compassion for like that Ketsia because I'm like, he was a super nice guy. He was very like the type of guy you bring home to your parents, very grounded. He was so unlike the next like 25 guys. That I needed, right. Yeah. Know? And now I've, it's come full circle. My husband is exactly like that, you know? Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah. So yeah, so I stayed. So I came back to Canada and I was like, 
he bought me out of the house. I shipped a bunch of my belongings back on a boat. It took like six wow. months to get back. And I interviewed for this job and it was like my first six figure job. And I was like, great. And because in the UK, I'd been doing recruitment. So I'd been working for companies doing recruitment for management consultants. And I I just on a whim applied for a job when I was home when my grandfather was sick and I got it. And again, I didn't tell my ex like, yeah. You're like, oh, by the way, I'm establishing a new life. So I'm sorry. I mean, it makes sense. I feel like all of us can look back at who we are, who we were in our 20s uh-huh. and be kind of devastated by it. To the timing of it, like you just think about how selfish you were in your 20s. Yeah, like, totally. Do all of those things without a second what for him. And I can say like, and I think really though, moving out so young also stunted my maturity in a lot of ways because I just like had this huge sense of entitlement to the life that I had. Things have kind of just yeah. come, not easy. I still worked hard in my career and whatever. Like I I was bilingual, so I got the job in the call center and I worked really hard, got promoted. And then I got, had that interview when I moved back to Canada. Got that job, rented an apartment downtown. And this was kind of like where the nightlife is. Now, Edmonton is a really, really cold place. It's like in the winter can be as cold as Siberia. Oh my God. Okay. And I, I went to school in Green Bay, so I think okay. that's cold. But Like minus 30 to 40, like there's wind chill. <laughs> that's like bananas. That's like when you go out and like your eyes start watering and then they just freeze and you get, yeah, you get little icicles on your... Well, and I used to get frostbite like on the tips of my ears or on my oh my like, god me and my girlfriends would go out wearing like literally nothing <laughs> yeah yes same yeah that was what started happening when I was living downtown I would start going out and my blackout started happening more often but again I still had yet to come to the point where I had any understanding of that I don't know if in like the early 2000s it was really talked about at all like it was celebrity if it was, I wasn't listening either. Like I was, it was not. Yeah, I don't think. And I feel like it was only celebrities who ever went to rehab, rehab or like had a problem with drinking, right? It was also not talked about, you know, consent in the way that it's talked about today. Oh. And consenting when like a, if a girl's like, I woke up in guys' beds blacked out. There's no way I could have consented. That is exactly what was happening at that time. Yeah. Yeah, that just wasn't a part of the conversation. It was more just like, you shouldn't have blacked out. Right. And and the onus was on you or like, it was like, oh, it couldn't have been that bad. And you're like, eh, I woke up in some randoms like room. Yeah. Like I have no idea where I am or right. That's a terrifying, terrifying oh, feeling. It happened. I think all of us from our generation carry yeah. that with us because it probably happened to us more times than we would ever talk about. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I think it's only in sobriety that we start approaching some of these topics because a lot of my friends that I know who maybe still struggle with drinking or who haven't started doing therapy or who haven't started digging deep into this, they don't ever like talk about those things. Like It's almost like yeah. that that was just an accepted part of growing up in that time. I know. I think it's so true that it's almost like we're just not even comfortable looking at that. At least I wasn't. Oh, yeah. I wasn't even willing to go there because that is so much shame. Yeah. And it just felt dirty and like this secret. And I didn't even let myself go there until, I mean, it was in my first year of sobriety, which is partly why I think sobriety is is tough mm-hmm. or can be tough is because those things like 
come back. And you do start to look at what happened when you were drinking. It kind of comes in waves, like something, you could be doing some, working on something completely unrelated and then it comes up or something triggers it and you're like, I feel like you have like a deja vu or like a flashback. Does that ever yes. happen to you? Or like Totally. It, especially in early sobriety and I would be like washing dishes or something mm-hmm. and then it would kind of wash over me and I'd like literally like shake my head to try to like, <laughs> oh my God, like that thought is, you know, like you're the cobwebs, like where is this memory is coming Mm -hmm. back. And wow, I didn't know that I had stuffed that down. And yeah, therapy is essential for like working all that Uh, shit out. Yeah. And I think like, so those blackouts were happening and I was like on this hamster wheel. I never processed the breakup of that long-term relationship. I literally just, like you said, jumped into this new life. Like here we are. Yeah. Well, It doesn't work that way because I'm quite a sensitive person. I have come to understand in sobriety, I'm a highly sensitive person and an empath. So like all of that, like life is already overwhelming. My anxiety would get back, would be really bad after nights of drinking and stuff. And I would just like stuff it down and be like, oh, whatever. And I remember I had my boss at the company I worked for turned out to be a huge narcissist and a bully. And he would like take credit for my work in presentations. He would come into my office and talk about like what I was wearing, like sexual harassment. What? Oh my God. So I remember one day I had, I had a really nice office in this building on like the, I think it was the 21st floor of this building downtown, like beautiful office. And he came in and when he left, I, I was sitting on the floor, like with my head between my knees or my hands, head in my hands just shaking. I could not breathe. One of the other guys came in that I worked with an older gentleman and he's so nice. And he like brought me a paper bag. And I was like, what is like, what is going on? I was having a full blown panic attack. Yeah. Oh my God. It had been about a year or so of him progressively getting more and more controlling and bullying and narcissistic. And then I found out it was happening to other people. Right. So I was like, yeah. So how did that like play out? What happened? What ended up happening is what I always do when I don't want to deal with something is I I laughed. What happened was I'd been hired to fill like these government contracts and I filled all the spots. Like I was the recruiter for the company and I filled all the spots and like my job was kind of like winding down organically. And there was this natural kind of break and things started getting really bad with him And so a friend of mine was going from high school, was going to Australia to visit his girlfriend who was working over there. And he said, Hey, I'm going to Australia. This was like on like a Tuesday. I literally left on like a Thursday. I just left. Really? (laughs) But it's like, what? Oh my God. We don't have the tools. I mean, you're, how old are you at this point? 27. Yeah. See, that is still... We feel like we're old at 27 and we're so not. I don't think I'd reach that point. Like I know around that age, you kind of have like, you have like your Saturn return and you kind of like, it's like a pivotal age for like your growth. Like, wait, tell me that again. What do you have return? A Saturn return. So what is this? Now I'm not really deep into this. So I'm not like an expert. Okay. I'm not either, but I want to be. (laughs) You in your lifetime, but it's really, that's the first one where you a lot of key changes can be going on in your life. If you think back to when you were 27 slash 28 kind of time, like yeah, did a lot huge. of things happen? Did your mindset shift? Like, and so there's one in your fifties, 
there's one in your, I think there's one in your like 87 or something like that. Really? Like there's a few throughout your life. And so that, and think about it, think about how many celebrities die around that age. Wow. Right. So what it is, you're, you're coming into grappling with your spiritual connection to like, you're feeling this this strong pull between our physical world and the things that are going on inside of you. Sometimes there's like a disconnect between all that. So yeah, it's pretty fascinating, but I didn't know that at the time. I was like, I'm going to Australia. No, but that is fascinating because even just applying that to my life, totally. Like I can totally see that. 27, 28 was huge. Yeah. And if you look up Saturn return, you might be able to correlate to the different parts in your life. Wow. Things that happened, right? Okay. This is so cool. Okay. So yes, you were... So I decided to go. So I, because I was renting my apartment, I didn't buy it. So I just basically like... Yeah. I can't remember if I broke the lease or not, but I must've done something right. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Loved, or I guess I met him there because him and my, his girlfriend were there. I flew by myself. I had to go through like, I had to fly like Edmonton to Denver, Denver to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to Sydney. Oh my God. Like <laughs> it was the cheapest way to do it. Yeah. But when I got there, things carried on the way they were. Like, So you were there with him and his girlfriend. Yeah, but what it was, she was doing this like job where she would recruit student volunteers to different kind of like aid projects, like helping build like, like Habitat for Humanity kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And she was recruiting them. And so there was a group of her and other people. And we're all kind of in the similar, maybe early 20s to like 30. So we'd go out and party together. So there was a constant group of people. And I had no return ticket or plan. Like, I just went to Australia. My my cousin and her husband were living there. They had immigrated from England. Okay. We were there and one other friend of mine. And I was just like, hey, I'm coming. That sounds like a good life decision to me. In your 20s? When else can you do that? Right. I mean, I could definitely not do that now. (laughs) But some of the things that happened when I was there were again, alarming and dangerous. And you talked earlier about the the consent and risky situations. Yeah. There was a lot of that happening. And I knew that it was stuff I wasn't comfortable with, but I had no autonomy. I had no agency over myself. Like I didn't know how to speak up for myself or even just to like what signals I was sending to people. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's not to say that, that I deserved it or anything like that. But the things that happened, if I had had kind of like when we know we have to quit drinking, a lot of people had that little voice for quite a long time before they actually finally managed to quit. It's like that when stuff like that is happening. So you're like, oh, maybe I just read into it wrong. The other problem is if you're drinking heavily, then you're never going to trust that you're in your right mind anyway. So you're going to be doubting yourself. Yeah, you're just always on your back foot. You're always, you're never ready. You're never able. Yeah, you're never capable. And so just because you're drinking, yeah, you're going to discount yourself and your instincts and like everything. Yeah, your instincts for sure. So I was there. I ended up staying. What I did was like travel to a few different places in Australia. Okay. And I met up with some people I had worked with in England. A lot of Aussies go over to England and to the UK and whatever to work. And so I met up with some people, ended up staying, I think it was like two months or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Came back to Canada, had no plan again. There was this guy that I kind of like hooked up with on the trip and he was planning to 
think he was American though, but he was planning to see Vancouver. And I had some friends out in Vancouver and Kelowna and I was like, oh, I'll just go with you. <laughs> yeah. Went and did that and ended up staying in Kelowna. I had a, a best friend all through school and she was living there with her boyfriend. And we hadn't kept in touch through all those years, but we reconnected through Facebook around that time, right? And she was like, oh, I'm living in Kelowna. Yeah. Which Kelowna is what they call the California of Canada. And it's a huge wine country, a lot of wineries, a huge drug industry, a lot of cocaine, a lot of meth now, a lot of that party drugs and stuff in there. Okay. That was a great place to go. (laughs) Right. You're like, I'm going to land here. That sounds good. Yeah. So I ended up there and I just had no plan again. And I I rented a room off her and her boyfriend, my friend from school. And I started working with clubs doing like club promotion for like DJs and stuff. And I was like, this is Uh great. Yeah, right. (laughs) Huge parties. And uh, yeah, then it took that slide into drugs and stuff around that time. So by this point, I was, yeah, I was 28. And so you like dove headfirst into that nightlife kind of scene. It was hard not to, though. When you have um, yeah. like Calvin Harris and like Steve Aoki and like famous DJs like coming and you're partying with them, of course you're going to, well, not of course, I say of course, but. Of course for Calvin Harris, yes. <laughs> have you seen him? <laughs> it was this little, what do you call it? Almost like a valley of like, there was no rules there. The rules to the rest of like Canada just didn't apply to this microcosm of a place. Okay. Yeah. People who lived there, there was a lot of hockey players who had homes there, like NHL players. The industry, there was not blue chip industry there. It was all like restaurants and like bars and stuff like that. So it was just really like a big party town. So if you came there, you kind of knew what you were getting out of it, right? And so that's where you lived. That's where I lived. Yeah. Okay. And I ended up meeting my daughter now, her dad there. Like we lived there. So Okay. Um, so we met. Long story short, we only stayed for a few months there and we ended up moving a wet or uh, sorry, east to outside Toronto. His his mom was there. And that's where I lived for the last ten years before we immigrated here. My daughter. Okay. Okay. So you're still together? Mm-mm. No. So, oh, no. Okay. No, we're not together. <laughs> I jumped. Okay. No, no, no. In 2010, I moved outside of Toronto and my daughter's turning eight in a couple of weeks. So she was born in 2014. So Aww. we were there for a few years, but the relationship was not healthy. Him and I had met during that party phase in Kelowna. Right. Yeah. He was a lot younger than me and we just had different goals in life. Yeah. He also was mentally abusive. There was a lot of mental abuse. I was very isolated in that relationship. I wasn't allowed to have friends. And of course he moved me across the country. So then really I had, had no friends. Right. Yeah. But this was like my pattern. Like I would just move for a guy or I'd I'd follow a relationship or I just kind of keep bouncing around. I kept always had this hope like, oh, this will be the one that works. And it just didn't work. Yeah, man. Yeah. And to be alone. So you were just outside of Toronto and you just had your baby. Yeah. And you were alone. Yeah. I mean, that's brutal. What happened was I ended up leaving him when she was 10 months old. Okay. But I had been planning to leave him before there was, he wasn't happy that we were going through with the pregnancy. And I was 33 at the time. And I was like, I'm doing this, like, you know, and yeah, I'd been planning this to leave him. And again, it turned into one of those midnight moves. I 
moved in with this girl I met on a Facebook mom's group, like the day I met her and Harper and I moved in there. Wait, okay. This is crazy because I have a Harper who was born in 2014. That's when Harper was born, December. Yeah. Really? Mine just turned eight at the end of August. Oh, I know. I know. And her name is always going to be my name. Like I always wanted her name. I love it. it's, It's a good name. Yeah. So she, that was the catalyst. Her birth, me getting pregnant and then her birth really was what drove that final wedge between him and I, where I was like, I can't, he still wanted to carry on our partying lifestyle and I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't be like pumping and dumping and like, oh my God, yeah. Being up all night and like doing all these things. And I was like, and then I was the one who was expected to do all the childcare and whatever. And I was like, it it just didn't work for me. So I left him. And Harper and I were in that one place where we moved into. And then a few months later, we moved into what we thought was a better option, a basement suite. Ended up having to leave there because they were moving a nanny in from overseas, which we didn't know about. And her and I ended up homeless for two months. Wow. We lived in a hotel um, through the Salvation Army. And how old was she? She was a year and a half. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine that for you. Yeah. Like that is... So what happened when when we ended up homeless was that uh, I was working at this restaurant and bar at the time and one of my regulars had given me the contact details for one of our like chamber of commerce or congressmen or whatever. And she was like, contact him. Like I know his secretary, like see what they can do for you. I contact his office. I like in tears, like I'm going to be living in my car. Like what do I do? I have a one-year-old and all this stuff. And they're like, well, we can put you up in this hotel, but you need to show proof. Like there'll be a caseworker that comes and they'll make sure that you're applying for jobs and whatever. So okay, that's what wow. I did. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah, so I was there. I dropped her off at daycare, which was subsidized. And then I would go to work at the, the bar or restaurant. And then we'd come back to the hotel for two months. Wow. You're a hero. That's I can't imagine how hard that was for you. And so we ended up finding a place. My parents finally were able to co-sign on a rental for us because obviously I wasn't working. Like I couldn't work. I had no one to help me with her. Yeah. Totally. Like he wasn't seeing her or anything like that. Yeah. So we found a house and we ended up living there for four years, like before we moved here. Okay. And 2018, I met my now husband on an old Instagram account. He sent me a DM. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He, it was funny. It was, I remember the post. It was, I don't have the account anymore, but it was some quasi like inspirational post, but with like a little thirst trap picture, though. I just uh, remember. Totally. That was the vibe back then, though, too. Wasn't it, though? Oh, my God. Totally. And tw- yes. I feel like it was like, Oh, here's me in this like skimpy bikini with something really yeah. inspirational. Let me tell you about yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna inspire you. Oh God! So you guys met, and then and now you're together in Edmonton. We're here in the states. Oh, you're in the states now. Harper and I immigrated one month after I got sober. Oh, you did. I just celebrated two years of sobriety on November first. Oh my God, congrats. Thank you. And her and I immigrated on December 15th. So crazy. Wow. Yeah. So many things at the same time. Like people were like, aren't you like stressed out about? Well, no, a lot of people didn't know then that I had gotten sober, but yeah, my husband was just like, that's a lot to do at the same time. He didn't even realize I had a, a problem with alcohol until one day I was like, 
I told him I joined the luckiest club and he was like, well, so in a nutshell, my drinking escalated when I became a single parent because it was so overwhelming to try and handle all the responsibilities. Totally. And it sneaks up on you when something's so normalized, you really don't, like I was saying earlier, you don't recognize it as a problem because you're like, everybody else is doing it. Yeah. But they weren't necessarily maybe doing it after and doing it earlier in the day and do you know what I mean maybe some of them were but it just felt like everybody was floating by and doing really well and I felt like I was just at this like standstill you know I couldn't get I couldn't wrap my head around yeah I felt like I, I wanted to crack the code of how I could make alcohol fit into my life and it turned out that there was no code like I'm not this code breaker it just doesn't work for me because it will always end up the same way or worse, right? Yeah. It takes us so long to realize that. And it takes some people longer and, you know, because it is like, it's just, it's not going to be different. And it took me a while. I ended up, I I was in denial that alcohol, well, in denial to other people that it was alcohol. I I kept ending up in the ER with withdrawal symptoms when I would try to quit. And, And I told people that it was like panic attacks and I remember the day that I, the final time I ended up in the ER, the doctor came in with like his intern or whatever, like, you know, they have students with his resident or whatever. There were yeah. them with him and I'm like, oh God, really? So I'm just like, like not now. <laughs> and, but I was like, I just remember I was shaking from it and I was just like, and he's like, they're just like, so matter of fact, like, so what's, what's the issue? I'm like, oh, I think it's drinking. And it was like, he didn't bat an eyelash. It was just like, okay, we're going to prescribe you whatever, right? But the problem is, for about a year and a half or two years, I was in this cycle of going to the ER or going to a different doctor or walk-in, getting prescribed things like benzos, abusing those by drinking with them. Really dangerous because those blackouts, you could be unconscious, right? Yeah. You could die, right? You could die. So that that's kind of the cycle. The catalyst for that, I wanted to get sober when I met my husband. I knew we were starting the process of immigration. I didn't want to end up here in the States still having this thing hanging over me, especially because he didn't know how much I drank, right? Yeah. And so did he, did you, would you guys drink together and you would be just fine? Or you, that just really wasn't a part of it? He's just not, he's not a drinker. And yeah, in 2019 for my 38th birthday, we, what we would do, he lives, like he was living here. So Baltimore is the closest airport. I would fly from Toronto to Baltimore. It's only like an hour. And we would do stuff on the weekends that Harper was with her grandparents. And we had planned this trip to Atlantic city. Great, whatever. And my sister-in-law at the time we were just engaged, but she gave me this bottle of Ciroc um, vodka for my birthday. Yeah, I'm like, great. I can bring this. I can have it in the hotel room with us. Well, didn't I crack that open at like 10 a.m.? Because it was, you know, my birthday, right? And I was like, yeah, whatever. And he's like, okay, well, I thought we were going to the gym first, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah. So that, that was a really sloppy birthday. But so if he had spent more time, he probably would have started to notice things. And now he doesn't drink at all. So he doesn't at all now. He likes playing blackjack. And he's like, if I ever felt like I wanted a drink when I was at the casino, then maybe, but he really doesn't go often. And when he does, he doesn't like drinking when he plays cards because he finds like it just slows him down. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. And so was there a, what was your like aha moment of, okay, I'm done with this cycle of 
drinking and then withdrawing and all of that. You said you did that for a couple of years. Like what was the thing that stopped it? That summer of 2020, like most of us who struggled with drinking during the pandemic, it reached scary heights, right? I was drinking in the morning. I had no control. On the weekends, Harper wasn't with me. She would go with her grandparents, like my ex's parents. And I would be so utterly lonely. Like I would just miss my daughter so much. And so I would drink over it because I didn't know another way to cope. Yeah. And it started intruding on the times I did have with her because I'd be so hungover and so shaky and so unable to function. And I was like, this is not fair to her. And she is a very, she has an extreme awareness. Like she's very gifted that way. And she, I knew she could sense like I remember vividly the one time I was like dry heaving because I was like so sick and she was just like rubbing my back. And I was like, what is wrong with this picture? You know, yeah. I have compassion now for where I was at, but it, there was a lot of things that started happening. And, and so that was it. So I tried in the summer. My mom sent me an email. This is the story behind the name of my Instagram account. Um, yeah. The, the email title was the elephant in the room, which is like a common saying, right? Oh, yes. Elephants were my maternal grandmother's favorite animals. And I have a tattoo with her name and stuff on me. And then when mom sent me that email, the elephant in the room, I was pissed. I was like, I don't have a problem. Like she had basically said, I know that you're struggling with this. She had come to help us pack up that summer and she had seen, she had found all my empties and all this stuff. Yeah. And so I I had to give it a real shot. I started going to TLC meetings and actually turning my camera on. And that's the luckiest club. That's Laura McCowan. Did you start with her book? Is that how you found it? Or you just started? I actually found it through the home podcast that her and Holly had, Oh, yeah. Which I love that podcast. I started. I know. And they like got into a fight, right? Yes. That's why it, That's why it ended. Yeah. They talk about it now. I remember a few months ago, they kind of like made light of it. But that was the podcast. I started listening to it secretly at the gym. Oh, okay. In 2018, I found it. Okay. So this was before you stopped. You were even listening to it then. Oh, yeah. Okay. I wanted proof that there were other women, especially who were making this work, who could actually go through life without alcohol. It's like, I needed to believe it. And and especially uh, Laura and Holly are writers. I'm a writer. Like I wanted the other women like me doing it. And I think that's important for anyone in recovery. You want to see. Totally. And I do think like our community still needs more diversity to it. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of us sober, cisgender, white women doing what we're doing, right? And and I yeah. would love to see more diversity. Even like now seeing some of the men starting accounts, there's a couple and I'm like, this is great, right? Yeah, even though they had their AA and they are the ones who started it all, but yes. In the beginning, yeah. Yeah, to get more men on board with this kind of in-between drinking. not just one way, right? Yeah, not just the AA path. Yeah, I'm with you for sure. And definitely more diversity. Yeah. Yeah, so then you started going to TLC meetings. How was that? I went to one of those, I think, early on too. I don't think I turned my camera on. I couldn't get sober until I started connecting, like turning my camera. I shared with my voice. I was so scared to do it because I, I just like, I still get nervous with public speaking, but like yeah. my heart like literally felt like it was going to beat out of my chest. And I was like, even though it was the least 
you know, scary kind of group, but I had to, right. And a bunch of people put their phone number in the chat and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, Oh, that's great. You've been doing it this one way for this whole time and it's clearly not working. Try a different way. Yeah. And so by starting to reach out, people were so welcoming I read Amy Dresner's book, My Fair Junkie. That was so good. That was when she was on the streets of LA, right? Yeah. Oh, that was so good. And so there was a few books. I'm a huge reader and I started all the money I'd been spending on drinking. I started ordering books and all these books would show up at the house and I was listening to podcasts, you know, kind of the same story that a lot of people have, but it still took a couple months of doing that. When I first started going to the meetings, I'd have my camera off and I'd be drinking my wine and I'd be like, whatever. But um, yeah, but I feel like that was still a part of it, right? Yes. That was you kind of getting used to the idea of this, like, what is this new world? What does it look like? And let's see if I can bring my old world into this new world. And then it became clear that you couldn't. It's all well, like an unfolding. I feel like it is. I feel like our stories, like, of course, there are very... Um, significant rock bottom stories for sure. Yes. I definitely had an addiction. Like I had, obviously I had a physical addiction and I had a mental addiction to it. Yeah. But I don't identify as an alcoholic. And I think there's a huge, when I hear people's stories, like there's some variations in how they came into it. But a lot of us tried for a long time to figure out how to make it work because we're made to believe that that's, yeah. that's the way it works. Like that you can do that. No one talks about the party girl who turns into a mom. Right. And like, where does that go? You know, I was a party girl and I loved it. I was a bartender. I was, I worked in clubs Mm -hmm. and I loved it. And there was something I got out of it. Right. You know? And so then you can't just go from party girl to then mother Teresa. (laughs) That's exactly it. When, when I was a single mom, uh, that behavior carried on when I was with her. Like I was going out with all sorts of people. I was trying. To, I was trying to find something. I was always like, yeah, seeking something. And I always thought, you know, one day I'll find what it is that I'm looking for. And meanwhile, like there was all always like married men or like just all sorts of things that like, yeah, I'm not proud of. But and even now in sobriety, every once in a while someone pops into my inbox, and I'm like. The one guy was like a week before my wedding. We got married in Vegas in February 20 or May, 2021. And like this guy popped up from the past and he had treated me horribly. He was really pretty much married, had like her living with him. I knew nothing about that. Anyway. And he was just like, Oh, I never knew you struggled with alcohol. Like I would have done something. I'm like, done something done. What? Like, yeah, well, nobody can save you. Right. Like no, no, right. Coming. You, do it. But second of all, do you think that I forgot all the things that I know you're like, save me, you were an asshole. Right. What do you mean? Yeah. You were one of the reasons I drank because yeah, exactly. between how I wanted to show up in the world and how I was. Yeah, I think it's so true. And I think this story of like, we partied in our 20s, especially our generation, mm-hmm. binge drinking, partying, nightclubs, all of that, like, and then becoming moms, like that's a huge identity shift that you're just not prepared for. And then to be a single mom on top of that, like, and that stress, I mean, you could totally see why you were searching for what you were. But you still, I still felt this shame and disappointment in myself because I, 
so where I lived in Toronto, like outside of Toronto was a very affluent community. So most of the homes were a million plus, right? And it was right on the, on Lakeshore was Lake Ontario. And it was a a very high end place. And we lived in a very nice neighborhood, but our house was an old Victorian home divided into a triplex. And it was like we were in amongst the, all the rich people or whatever. And then we were on a wait list for public housing that at that point was 10 years long. Oh my God. So if I hadn't met my husband, you see it all the time that people sadly are caught in that cycle forever through generations, right? Totally. And it was heartbreaking because I remember I'd be sitting in the social worker's office having to sign the paperwork for the subsidized day for the next year. My daughter and I would be going to food banks. We'd be getting food share. I'm writing a a memoir right now and I'm writing about some of those things like the food share and coming home with food and spreading it out on the floor and like making sure that we had enough things for the week and all while I was drinking. Like so in amongst woven in amongst that, I still managed to find money to buy alcohol. It, it was madness, but I didn't know how to cope. Exactly. Like you could see that you use that as a lifeline. Like that is so clear mm-hmm. without the judgment, right? Because when we look back on our own stories, it's with such judgment. Mm-hmm. But then hearing somebody else's like if you heard your story told back to you. There wouldn't be judgment for the mom who is clearly struggling, right? Right, But that's so easy to judge ourselves in our past. Yeah. That's why I share my stories so publicly the way I do, because it helps me also. Like now I can look back, I post every single day and I can look back and see some of my posts. I started the account before I got sober. I tried in July or June of that of 2020. Yeah. I remember there's some posts. That I leave them all up because I'm like, whatever. It's like seven days sober. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, you can just see like this evolution and I'm not afraid to just post whatever on there. I honestly don't, I, whatever's speaking to me, like, you know, a lot of people batch their content and stuff. And someone was so shocked the other day. I was like, oh, I write it every morning. <laughs> She's like, what? great. Maybe my reels, I don't do that. But No, but you can tell, like your page is very authentic. You guys go check it out, Sober Elephant Chronicles, oh, which I love you. that. And now that I know the origin, I mean, that's so special. Yeah, that's it. So how is sobriety where you sit today? How are you feeling? Great. I feel grateful in the past, you know, six months or so that I found the therapist that I did I, I said earlier, I tried yeah. seven different therapists before this one. That's a lot of work too, like to try that and to keep going. To not get disheartened by it. Yeah. And I had had a really good therapist in Canada who I did acceptance commitment therapy with, which is like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And I ended up getting certifications in that. Like I just, it really resonated, but it was more to do with her, right? Like her and I connected, yeah. but I was never fully honest with her about my drinking until the end. When she would get the reports, like, you know, they ask you, like, can we release this to your doctor if you go yeah. to the ER? And I was like, yeah, I guess. And so when I go into see her, she'd be like, I didn't know you were struggling. But anyway, yeah. so this past six months, I've been able to start doing some work around some of those traumas that we talked about earlier and some of the like sexual trauma and some of the family of origin stuff, some mother wound stuff. And it's been... yeah. I do therapy every two weeks. And right now that's what I can handle, right? Because I'm like, stuff comes up and I'm like... I know. And even that feels like a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I've been writing the 
memoir, which has changed shape like so much. It's not just based on my drinking though. It's, it's, there's a few different themes in the book around motherhood and around the spiritual kind of gap. Like I grew up in the church. Oh, nice. I was baptized when I was a teenager. We got to choose to be baptized. I was camp counselor and stuff. And that was a big part of my early life. Yeah. And then I lost that. And then in sobriety, you come into this huge realm. Like if you don't do AA, if you if you kind of explore all these other options that are out there, I take whatever resonates for me. I'm like, oh, okay. I really like this part about, you know, being a highly sensitive person or I like praying every day. I don't necessarily have to call it God or whatever. Right. Right. It's different. Yeah. So like taking what is meaningful to you from your religion. Yeah. Yeah. That's been really good. I teach kind of healing writing workshops. Oh, that's awesome. And I started doing that in my first year of sobriety. I wasn't allowed until I had my green card, I wasn't allowed to earn money. Okay. And so I was like, I want to connect with people. So I set up this thing on Eventbrite and started these workshops that have now turned into this like beautiful space. I have a women's one and then I have I have two women's one and a co-ed one that I do. I am working on writing a memoir too. So that would be so helpful. I'm going to check that out because it is like, I I feel like writing and sobriety so often go together. I think what I'm going to do in January is do a six week class for people who want to establish their writing practice and sobriety because you you don't have to identify as a writer. People in my workshops have found so much healing through that process and just connection to other creative outlets within themselves, you know? Totally. One thing I've been hearing from people, from women in my group, mm-hmm. uh, the Sober Mom Life on Facebook, is in sobriety, what they're surprised by is all this free time they have. Yeah. And that you don't realize how much time you wasted drinking, even if it was wine at night, right? you know, and then time just slipped by and you didn't know. But now everything does kind of slow down and you have that time. And so what do you do with that time? And writing is such a great way to spend it. And I don't think that it's oversaturated. Some people are like, oh, there's so many quitlet or whatever. No, there's not enough. I devoured all of them in my first uh-huh. first few months of sobriety. And I was like, I need more. I kept like refreshing. I was like, I was like, how are, I need more. What how have I read all these? One books? of my favorite ones came out in the 90s, Caroline Knapp's Drinking a Love Story. Yeah, Drinking a Love Story. And I love Gail Caldwell as a writer too. I recently read her book about her and uh Caroline's friendship and uh The Long Way Home. Yeah. Oh, okay. Really good. But that was one. And I'm like, so we've been writing these for a long time, maybe not under the title of that genre never existed. Yeah. But you know what? If more women are emancipating themselves from mommy wine culture, why wouldn't they be telling their stories? The patriarchy can't be like, oh, you're not allowed to be sharing this because there's too many. Right. There's never too many. (laughs) No, there's never too many, especially when now it's such a huge tool in people's sobriety toolboxes when we're not going to AA meetings. We're just at home, we're in our kitchens, we're cleaning, we're doing laundry, and we have an AirPod in our ear. Mm -hmm. And we're listening to sobriety podcasts and books. Like, we need those. One of my ideas that I had to put on the back burner this year, I want to do a podcast and I have my idea. And it's not, again, it's not strictly sobriety related, but it is, as women, I think we talked about this earlier, our hormones play a big role in how we 
are able to metabolize alcohol, how it affects us, yeah. different parts of our cycle, like now going into like thinking about perimenopause and stuff. Yeah. I want to talk to women at like different stages and th- and talk about the things that maybe they they were able to move on from or let go of. Like this served a, a purpose at this stage in my life. What am I letting go of? Because there is, yes. even though you know you have to quit drinking, there's still a grieving process that we should honor. Definitely, yeah. Like people will say, then you're not fully relieved of the obsession of alcohol. And I'm like, I just don't believe that. No, no, it's not this binary thing. Mm-hmm. It's gray, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I swear I could talk to you forever, I, especially about writing. Like yes. we need to have another um, session so we can talk about writing. And when your book, do you know like when it's coming out or anything? Well, I just, I had an essay come out in a like anthology this year. The Oh, that's cool. The Last Hangover. The Last Hangover. Oh, cool. Yeah. I wrote that at a year, maybe not even a year sober. There's uh, 11 essays in there. And so I think I'm in the stage right now where I'm trying to decide, I'm researching like hybrid publishers. I'm talking to the, that publisher as well about maybe working with them. And I'm kind of just forging ahead with my writing, but well, definitely I want to get it out next year, but yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Oh my God, guys, stay tuned. I'm excited for it. You'll come back on here and then we'll talk all about it. Well, thank you, Katsia. You guys go follow her at Silver the Silver Elephant Chronicles, right? Yeah. Okay. There's a the, okay. The Silver Elephant Chronicles. I'm going to go drink some hot tea and hopefully get rid of this cold. Thank you so much. This was just so amazing. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. You're a survivor. You're a hero. You're a superwoman. You really are. I hope you feel that. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sober Mom Life. If you loved it, please rate and review it wherever you listen. Five stars is amazing. Also, follow me on Instagram at The Sober Mom Life. Okay, I'll see you next week. I'm going to go reheat my coffee. Bye. Why are we doing an ad again? So that we can tell people about brand new information, a pop culture and political podcast. Say it in a way that doesn't sound like game show host. Okay. Do you want to be in a room of overeducated douchebags and feel comfortable? Brand new information is for you. What's it going to take to put you in this podcast today? We have brand new information on sale for free. Free. Wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. We might not break the political and pop culture news of the week. But we put it right back together for you. That's right. Listen wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty. Feel sexy and alive as F. 
So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.